0: Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 114, and today I have with me Dan Kings. Hey, Dan, how you doing?
1: Hey, Lauren. Nice to speak to you.
0: So I'm practicing my sort of uh, radio host voice, um, although it probably sounds remarkably similar to every single other one that I do. Um I'm really grateful to have you donate your uh, time and, and share with me this discussion that we're going to have today, which will be um, loosely around this concept of being a cultural chameleon um, and the importance of that and awareness of that in um, being a performance nutritionist, which, face it now, is probably one of one of the biggest... Um, exports for the sports science uh, industry in terms of, uh, you know, countries like the UK and Australia and United States and so on, you know, the chances of you either practicing um, only in your own country, if you're in elite sport, particularly, or working more importantly with clients or athletes that only come from your country or culture are pretty rare. And I think the best example of this is the amusingly entitled English Premier League, which consists of primarily maybe one or two token English players and the rest of them mm-hmm. are uh, foreign in one way or form. And in all seriousness, this is important, um, this topic that we're going to get into, the importance and awareness of culture and how that impacts the needs and requirements of our athletes, but also the important influence that that will have on how we determine the needs and requirements for our athletes and how our, our, our recommendations should be structured and the likely impact that they will have and by that I mean the, the sort of the, the, the translational cultural translational blocks that can be involved in in that process on both sides both by us not understanding cultural issues in terms of Um, what people are used to, uh, like, don't like, can do, can't do, um, are used to, the practical aspects of that, um, and uh, also um, that process being reversed by the recipient of that information. So it's a pretty complex process, and I couldn't think of someone better um, to talk to than a Welshman based in the Middle East. It's the ultimate uh, example. So now that I've said that, um, Dan, for those of the listeners that aren't aware of who you are and what you're up to, why don't you give us a, a quick idea of, of, um, of yourself and, and, and what's currently distracting you professionally?
1: Yeah, sure. No problems. Well, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's, it's a great privilege to, to be amongst uh, a lot of the speakers that you've had already. Uh, and, and as a non-academic a non-academic kind of person. It's, uh, it's always daunting when I do, do these things. So so thanks very much. Um, okay, I'll save you the 25-meter swimming certificate uh, version, and I'll give you the executive summary, if you like. Um, started with a degree in food science, moved into an MSc in nutrition and dietetics, um, and, and, and across my younger career, also worked as a tennis coach. So I've got a, a pretty big coaching background as well. Uh, My first jobs were really clinically working as a dietitian and then I was lucky enough to get a break um, with the Welsh Rugby Union and I worked with the Welsh uh, national team full-time from 2002 to 2008 and really worked with the national team management to develop all the, the regional franchises and the nutrition support to each of the franchises and Set almost like a blueprint, if you like, for, for, for future services. Um, finished there in 2008 and I went from there then, worked in a consultancy basis on my own and worked in things like Premier League, Championship, Elite Military Units, BBC, um, nice projects with the National Dairy Council, to do kind of more health promotion kind of stuff, which was really cool. Um, and then from there, I moved on into the English Institute of Sport, uh, where I was lucky enough to work. Um, with some amazing practitioners um, like Kevin Carell, Mike Naylor, uh, who are obviously still there at the moment doing great jobs. And I worked with GB Hockey, Men's and Women's, GB Synchronised Swimming, um, Harlequins Rugby Union. Uh, they were a professional sport who contracted services at BIS. Um, but I was also lucky enough to work and support the British Olympic Association Intensive Rehab Unit in Bisham Abbey, which was a fantastic experience for me, um, covering colleagues, um, and and really set me up to, to kind of what I'm doing now, um, uh, which um, I moved on to after I worked in Sport Wales for a little bit, leading performance nutrition. Um, but but basically now I'm um, I started off as a head of service for sports nutrition here in Doha, um, servicing twenty thousand. Registered athletes
0: for the Catalan. The the Aspitar. Yep.
1: So so the the National Sports Medicine Program is based at Aspitar Sports Medicine and Orthopaedic Hospital, um, which essentially is 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 exactly that. It's a hospital. It's a fifty-bed um, uh, hospital specialising in um, ankle, knee, shoulder surgery. Um, but we also um, have. A whole range of support services that you can possibly manage imagine under one roof so we have medical Im- complete medical imaging suites sports dentistry sports science um, for surgery suites training suites for surgery um, you know the, the kind of list goes on I mean even we have an altitude 25 out al- 25 bedroom altitude hotel here um, so, you know, it's a great facility, very, very privileged to do so. And, and, and when I came here, I started practicing as the head of sport nutrition services. Um, and, and, and I've been working hard and um, my current role is assistant director of sports science. Um, and I lead a team of psych, sports psychologists, uh, sports podiatrists sport nutritionists, physiologists, and strength and conditionists, um, to essentially a load of services, not only performance but 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 predominantly injury and looking after the health and well being of Qatari based athletes and also international athletes that we see coming through Aspatar as well.
0: Dan, that is a impressive resume mate and you know i think it's exciting for all of us to listen to you know your sort of career path to date because it also helps to describe the amazing variety that one can have in performance nutrition um now obviously not anyone can do those things you you do need to have certain credentials and qualifications and you need to work hard at what you do but also um, one of the things I really want to get into in this conversation with you is, is you know, the, my theme is, has always been um, emphasizing the science to practice, you know, translation, um, it, you know, being a performance nutritionist as being a practitioner. Um, and there are many contexts in which we apply that knowledge and that science and there is considerably more to it than just science, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone that's listened to my podcast gets that um, one way or another, but something that we haven't necessarily had much opportunity to get into um, is this, this concept of, of being a global sports nutrition practitioner. And I've read some of your work on this. Um, and of course, you know, we we both have interesting backgrounds and experiences in working in different countries and different environments. Like I was at the World Cup, of course. And but as we were just talking offline, and this is something you've written about, being a global sports nutrition practitioner isn't doesn't necessarily mean you have to be working overseas in another country. It, it's very much something that you will face day to day um, in your own home country, so to speak, um, because we do live particularly in countries like the United Kingdom, United States, Australia, uh, France, Germany, and so on. Or, you know, I mean, we have listeners all over the world who will identify with this. It's a highly mixed multicultural environment. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is uh, pretty much a, a, a critical aspect to practice now is the awareness of this um, and you've done a lot of work on this and I will you know what we'll, um, you know if, if I'm able to I'll, I'll attach to the show notes you know you, you've written some articles about this about being a cultural chameleon um, but I just wanted to dive into this in a bit bit more detail but before we get into that I know you've also recently completed some research to get your, um, your MBA congratulations Congratulations on that! Forever learning, of course. Yeah. Um, but what I mean, what what's led you, you know, down this path? We've heard we've heard your background. You've you've done amazing things at the elite, you know, at the elite level on a massive scale. So, what led you down this path of interest, though, um, that we're going to get into?
1: So, uh, there's, there's quite a lot in there in terms of questions. So, I mean. Probably a good place to start is is to say that I'm look I'm 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 not a pioneer. I'm not generally I'm not a pioneer. I'm not the only person who's gone outside of the UK and worked for a few years. Um, all, all I've done is try to use my dietetic and my professional skills in the context of reflection and actually document that. And and when it certainly when I, when I was offered the opportunity to come to Qatar and work, you know, one of the immediate observations that I made is that there's not really that much in the literature. You know, we always go and make an evidence based or an informed decision on things. And that's great for technical areas of, you know, sport nutrition practice. But actually, you know, when you look at the literature, there's nothing from a social science perspective within our area of work that, really gives us an indication if we're going to succeed or fail in those other other areas you know of the world and when you when you look at the um, success and failure rates of, of expats working overseas you know there's between 25 and 50% failure rates that's wow. massive you know yeah. and um, when when you decide when you decide if you're lucky enough to be to be offered a position overseas it's a, it's a big decision And especially for the likes of myself, I've got a a family, um, you know, a wife who's a professional teacher, you know, when you're up in sticks and you're making a big commitment, you you really have to be as confident as you can be that you you not only have the technical ability to deliver something in that job, but you also have the personal capability. To, to actually get on with people and, and work in that job. And I'll be honest, you know, I've, I've learned by doing over my jobs and I've upset a lot of people because of perhaps the way that I've talked to them or, you know, I haven't approached things in the right way. But, but that was one of the drivers of doing my MBA is to understand a lot more about myself, a lot more about how to work with other people, but not only that, actually how to work with other people who don't necessarily come from the same culture as you. And my, my pathway to coming to Doha was um, really from, from my mentor, um, a guy called Floyd Woodrow, um, who, who I work with from a military point. And he, he's developed um, a concept called uh, the Compass of Life, which is basically looking at your, your journey and your career, pulling out key experiences, looking at your strengths and where you, where you want to go with your life. And one of the things that I realised on my reflection and my journey was really I could, I could see the cultural diversity that was starting to happen in elite sport. And, and, and two things, I was becoming aware and concerned that I'd never really worked in, in a culturally diverse situation in sport. And i wanted to do that and second of all i wanted a different culture for my family to to actually experience so you know when the moon's aligned um in terms of the decision making process and there are you know as i've written about in in the simple cultural chameleon article you know there are there are a number of criteria which are identified that, that, that increase your success rate of working you know, overseas so so when a lot of those ducks aligned if you like then you know that's that's kind of what led me to to coming here is, is getting a really what i would call an enriched experience for something which i'm sure i could have got in the uk because you don't have to go overseas but really sometimes even if you're taught something on paper there's no experience for just being immersed in something and I chose the decision to be immersed in something in a different country rather than actually you know reading about it and having a little bit of experience in the UK you know over a protracted period of time so that that's kind of my journey if you like that's what's led to
0: It's amazing and you know you talk about the reflective process you know as you know I had to do a lot of that for my doctorate my professional doctorate and boy was that useful because there is so much you can learn and like you say You might have upset people along the way, and that might not necessarily be because you just said something overtly insulting. It's just that you might have meant it nicely, but it was translated in the wrong way, you know, for reasons that we will expand upon. But I just wanted to just backtrack because you said a couple of things that, you know, we call this the We Do Science podcast, but you've totally smashed it by talking about moons colliding and, and sort of ducks in a row sort of thing. <laughs> so, so, Dad, you know, that's it. We're done. I'm totally, I'm going to have to, fit, you know, go hide somewhere now. Um, brilliant stuff. Um, so, listen, I, I just so I can keep us on on course with, with stuff here, because, you know, you're eminently qualified to get into this conversation in terms of, there will be many listeners who would love to do what you're doing and achieved what you've achieved. Um, but in particular, as I said in my own preamble, you know, you, you're not necessarily going to have to go live in the Middle East or go to the United States or somewhere in Europe. If you know, if you're a British practitioner, for example, but mm. you know, you, you've used this, this term global sports nutrition practitioner and you get into context, context, con- concepts such as globalization Um, and I think this is particularly important for us to get into partly because in my own research in um, my work you know I identified from similar aspects of social sciences as you have developed an interest in things like a community of practice Um, and there are many boundaries that we come across for example there are professional um, disciplinary interdisciplinary boundaries there are boundaries between knowledge and, and practice and you know translational issues and you know um, communication issues between say sports scientists coaches nutritionists dietitians mm-hmm. athletes the family and so on and of course we're adding in an extremely big but often underappreciated dynamic and boundary to that which is you know the the, the cultural uh, component to that so to bring that back to how I started this this bit of what is a global sports nutrition practitioner and, and, and why is it important for us to be aware of what that concept is and, and and reflect upon where we're at in that in that sort of situation and what you know where do we go from there sure so so again, it's, it's
1: quite a bit in there, but I mean, the, the reference point for wherever you decide to go and work in the world or wherever you do work in the world is, is something that I've written about that's that's been in the research from the 50s, and they call kind of value orientations. And essentially, um, there's been quite a lot of studies done, and the biggest one being something called the GLOBE study, G-L-O-B-E. Um, and, you know... The, the, Essentially, they've been able to sort of map um, behaviours and certain um, things in certain areas of the world, which, which, which really stand out as clusters, you know. And they've they've grouped countries into those clusters. And from that, then, um, certainly in the business world, they've been able to map um, some um, competencies, if you like, um, some knowledge, skills, and attitudes, or KSAs, that that really if you have those KSAs then essentially you stand a good chance of um, being a pretty good uh, what they call um, an inter intercultural uh, interculturally competent um, person so so really that's your starting point is to understand well where you are in the world and what what's pretty normal in, in the area that you are um, um, and 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 for me as a practitioner, the initial difficulty of that was the professional identity, you know, um, because wherever we travel, the world's nutritionist and dietitian, they mean perhaps different things. They do different job descriptions, different tasks, different pers- people in those roles. So one of the immediate challenges that, that I think I found and, other people that I've spoken to have found is, well, what does, your, what does your discipline actually mean in the country where you're going to practice? And and you and I both know, because we've talked about it, that actually you don't have to go to a different country, even in teams, you know, there's, there's a massive variation in terms of beliefs and knowledge and what people think someone should be doing. And that, that can become actually quite frustrating. To and it. respect as well. Exactly. You know, yeah. when you end up perhaps doing things that, you know, it's useful because it's it's helping the team, which is or the individual, which is what our role is all about. But at the end of the day, you know, is it really using the expertise that we've really studied for for all these years? Pro- probably not. Um, so, so for me, in terms of boundaries, you know, professional identity is 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 one of the biggest challenges that I've I've experienced in my journey so far. Is that variation in meaning between you know, what people think you should be doing and actually what you are qualified to do. And and I think then it's having the soft personal skills and the ability to know how to talk to those people, whether it's in your own country or from different countries of the world, to try and make them understand what you usually do and perhaps the other benefits that they haven't experienced before. Um, because I think working, again, my experience is working in a multicultural environment is you know, it can, the amount of people that we have, I mean, in Aspital there's over 70 nationalities, which is great from a competitive edge perspective, but it brings with it a lot of different beliefs and knowledges and practices. And that's great if we're all going the same way, but but actually you do come across times where you've got to try and change people's knowledge and behaviours to something perhaps which is the better of the athlete, you know, rather than just what they previously believe from another country. So, so that's kind of where I am, really, in this whole, you know, where's the starting point?
0: And just because you've mentioned cultural differences, I mean, it would be good just to contextualise that just a little bit. You know, what what does that mean uh, anyway? Uh, I realise that could be a a book, a podcast, whatever, but just some examples, particularly maybe just extracted from your own experiences what i mean what are the sort of cultural differences that perhaps we should be aware of that are relevant to this
1: so so culture is quite a broad term you know um so again you talk about culture of a, of a performance team so 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 that's more in the respect of how people are working together to get to get to that end point if you like um, and the bits that i pick up on you know from the literature in my work are essentially thing, things around that. So I'll give you some kind of examples. So some of the terminology is like what they call power distance. So essentially, you know, your the, the the amount of impact that you have, um, uh, influence that you might have between, you know, your big boss and, and yourself, you know? Yeah. Um, I am my own boss, by the way. So there's a lot of uh,
0: <laughs> internal struggles going on there. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, in terms of culture, um, it could be the extent to which people avoid uncertainty. Yeah, which is huge. Um, Planning is another big one. You know, do people plan? Don't they plan? Um, How much people work as groups or individuals? Another one. Um, You know, are they long-term, short-term kind of people? Uh, And you know. The degree of even simple things like the degree of encouragement or reward that you get from 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 doing what you do you know they call that humane orientation i mean that's the that 's the technical term for it so yeah. so there 's lots of ways you know there 's lots of things that go into culture and that can cause something called cultural distant dissonance, so essentially you know what you 're usually used to compared to what you 're now facing and I think the challenge is to look at um, you know where you've come from and where you currently are, and see where those missing pieces of the jigsaw are. And essentially, that that's what I tried to to do with my thesis research and my MBA is try to look at that to to, to kind of create, if I could, um, almost like a global map of competencies so that if somebody was thinking about going to work from the UK who's worked there for a number of years to Asia then you know they they were possibly aware that they needed to have these other sorts of competencies in addition to the ones that they had yeah Um, and if they didn't have those competencies then it it made them more self-aware that they could actually you know look at that in terms of their professional development to develop those competencies um and reach out to people to help that um to try and improve their chances of success in the country where they want to go and practice because like you say you know there's so many people going out in the UK in sports science looking to get into sports nutrition there's some amazing examples of practitioners that have gone you know globally to and succeed you know in the USA I can think of several, you know, one of which Dave Hamilton, the uh, ex-head of strength and conditioning, who now works in Penn State. Um, Andy Murray, who was was a was a practitioner here, who's now gone into the MBA. Uh, You've got Adam Beards, who's now at Chicago Cubs. There, there's a whole load, of, there's a list now. So, you know, borders are really coming down in terms of, into, uh, you know, appointments within a country. And it, it's very much people looking at that best fit and not afraid to look outside um, of of just the person. They're looking at people who can really do the tasks as they're looking for the good fit. And that is essentially a person who can also do the tasks. So they're very much, people are very much looking now to to look outside of their own country to get that right recruitment.
0: So there's, yeah, there's so much here and I'm excited because you're mentioning things that I really feel are important that a lot of us including yourself and myself have only found out the hard way really. Um, so it's great that we can share this information, you know, um, to the audience, uh, and the, and, and maybe the, the more early career practitioners who, who are more likely nowadays to have that opportunity to go and work overseas, mm-hmm. um, and do all this stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, in order to be quotes, unquotes" a damn good, sports nutritionist is you, you have to be competent and that word competence an interesting term because there's a lot involved in that. But ultimately it, it really does come down to not just being, um, you know, I can't think of a better phrase, but being just shit hot at sports mm-hmm. nutrition science and knowing your stuff and acing all your exams and understanding rocket science, but you really do have to, you know, not only determine what the right, recommendations are at the right time and decision making and critical thinking. But communication is just such a huge part of that. And that's Mm -hmm. a big part of what we're getting into. And I, and I, I think the word dissonance that you mentioned there is a particularly important term because, you know, people may be more familiar with cognitive dissonance as a concept. um, But I love this idea of cultural dissonance. And I guess we could, you know, we, we could bring that to other terms like um, simply, uh, well, the misaligned ducks in a row type conversation, but, but definitely where there's an ignorance um, yeah. or, uh, or even better, an ignorance of one's own ignorance. And I think that's where you can run into trouble because correct me if I'm wrong, it's certainly been my experience. If you do get some of these things wrong, that is the very first experience that that person has in that different culture to you. And mm. that was your opportunity to establish an opportunity to engage in some sort of a relationship where they, they don't know you, they don't necessarily know your culture and why you are the way you are and the way you are going to mm. act. And therefore they're not going to trust you. And in order to be a really good practitioner, you need to be able to gain trust mm. in your in your clients before you start unleashing all that amazing science that you've got. So that's, that's why I love the way you brought dissonance into that. Um, I mean, what, you know, in terms of, I mean, if we move on from cultural differences, which I think you've covered well, and I think it, you know, once people start thinking about that, it becomes such a massive area in itself. But you know, the next thing that you've mentioned in, particularly in one article that I'm sort of following as a guide for this is the concept specifically of cultural intelligence. Mm. Lots of us have heard of things like EQ and IQ, but I'll be, I'll be straight up and honest until I read your article about this. I hadn't actually heard that term of cultural intelligence. What, what, what is what is that term? And why actually could it possibly be the most important one of those terms?
1: Um, so, so I think I think in that article I referenced, There's a good BBC article that that, that was written, which I think I reference um, in 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 that uh, in that in that article that I wrote. And and essentially, I think that, that while I'm looking at it here, it, it was called the hidden talent that determines success. Um, you know, th- th- there's lots of real-world intelligences now, like you have hit on, that people are really interested in, like emotional intelligence social intelligence, practical intelligence, but, but really where cultural intelligence fits in, it, it adds that cultural content, context, if you like, that's missing in all the other real-world intelligences. So essentially, it's your, it's your ability to, to and, and your awareness of different cultures and how to behave um, you know, within those different cultures Um, would be sort of the simplest way that I could describe it without really paraphrasing some of the some of the things in my in in my article or or my research Um, but but yeah it's 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 essentially made up of um, a number of different things Um, you know it's it's not really specific to a a particular culture, but I mean, there's two forms of cultural intelligence. There's an organisational one, an awareness, and then there's an awareness of ethnic and kind of geographic culture. So, so perhaps that's a bit of a better way of describing, you know, it more in a in, in, in an easier term. You know, it comes from cultural intelligence comes from two sides.
0: So, as someone who's not only managed to. Um, you know get a lot of opportunities come your way in terms of you know working with elite teams professional athletes elite military units and um and i like the way in your in your intro that that sort of pre pre you know made you qualified then to work with the bbc i thought <laughs> that was particularly uh, particularly well strategized um but but bearing in mind that the, everyone that's listening, for the most part, um, you know they do want to see a long and fruitful career ahead of them. And since you have not only achieved that, but you are also now in a position where you play a role in the, you know, in in, in actually um, employing people, um, and you have an idea about what is or is not going to make someone's resume, if you like, more attractive mm-hmm. um, and more likely to get that position. I mean, in terms of the implications for the potential to to get a job, to have that successful encounter, um, what, what are going to be the, the key aspects to this? Or well, I guess I'm, I guess we're already discussing that, but maybe you could yeah. reiterate just how important this is. Because you know, as we joked before we started recording, you know, people—the thing that gets a high volume of listeners for these sorts of podcasts or traffic on social media is if people start talking about protein or you know body fat leucine thresholds but what we're talking about is is arguably more important than this because this is what's going to enable that that client yeah. to hook in with you or to get that job i mean you know maybe you could expand on that
1: i think i think i think that's one of my frustrations you know is i go to a lot of good technical conferences um, but but since, certainly since doing this work and and really looking into it in a lot more detail and I and I plan to do more in the future as well um, with some further further academic sort of learning. But you know it is a side which is really missed and that's really really important because essentially um, there are a number. There, there are a number of competencies that go into these sort of knowledge, skills, and attitudes that are really important to be successful and culturally intelligent. Um, and if people aren't aware of these things, then you can be you know, the best technical person in the world. You can have an amazing PhD, um, you know, brilliant a levels, all the rest of it. But essentially, the bottom line is you've got to work with people. And people who want to employ you as well because you can have all of those skills and you can spend and as much money as you want on academic studies but you still need to pay the bills and you still want to practice in the area that you've spent years developing your your hard skills you're getting all these qualifications for and ultimately you know what i look for personally in people now is really those soft skills um, and they're the immediate things that came out of my research and I had, because there was nothing really in the literature in, in, our, in, in our sphere of practice, if you like, I had to very much delve into the business side of the, the literature to, to try and pull things out as a starting point. And if I give you an idea, I mean, you know, my, my questionnaire was built on 43 different competencies across three different themes so you know what i was able to do was to kind of narrow those down and look and cross-reference them across managers and practitioners to see well where where did people think the same and essentially there are a number of things which 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 came out um simple things like listening skills adaptability you know decision making capability you've already mentioned communication and feedback skills because people talk about communication, but actually, what does that really mean? You know, a lot of people these days, they want feedback from things they've done positively or negatively, and we know that has a massive impact. You can switch people off if you do that incorrectly. Um, and especially where you've got a multicultural, multinational situation, people can take things that you mean one way completely the other way. So, you know, these are really, really important things. And technical knowledge is in one of those key, you know, Um, competencies for sure but the ability to build partnerships and alliances mentoring developing others you know and the ability to influence and motivate these are all things which came out really strongly in my work Um, and if I put myself in an interview situation I mean for sure you know if if people could demonstrate those sorts of things to me you know and it's not just on a Read job descriptions these days, and there's this whole thing, you know, points one to 12 that they like to have. But I would actually question if people actually, you know, can have any of their current competencies mapped to those things. Because that was the other thing that came strongly out of my, word, out of my work is that competencies are poorly mapped against actually current tasks that people are doing in elite sport, in sports nutrition. Mm. Um, you know, and I and I was lucky enough through the the, the the goodwill of you know a lot of people that chose to be involved in my study. You know, I was lucky to get sixty percent of the you know institutes of sport that I I know are available in the world, um, and all the big ones as well within that. So you know, and there are people who who offline were readily reporting to me and and really well known people. They, they haven't had competencies mapped in, an, in a new Olympic cycle. And and the other thing, that's the other thing that came through my work, is that people thought that the competencies needed for success had changed over the course of the previous Olympic cycle. Yeah. So, you know, this is a dynamic and flexible thing. It's not a static thing. And, and what I hoped for my work was that actually it started to perhaps raise a little bit more awareness and bring it back up to, to, you know, to the top a little bit to say, right, well, this is something that's really important that we should be doing at the start of our cycles to see where we are, how, how things have changed, um, to make sure that we can impact in performance in the right way. Um, and, and where those competencies have moved on, we can perhaps link that back to our professional development with our, with our groups of practitioners to make sure that they're still able to do what we want them to do with their excellent technical knowledge. So, so it, was, it was pretty enlightening for me. Um, and I'm really happy that I was able to, to document it and, and we'll be publishing findings as well very, very shortly.
0: You know, and I, I think it's important also because this is really fascinating, but it it might lead some listeners who are considering themselves as more lab-based scientists or, you know, you know uh, institution-based researchers and so on, and they're like, you know, okay, this is all very interesting, but I, it, it's not that relevant to me because, you know, I'm not in the cold face practicing with these people. But actually it is because you're doing – the science that's informing the practitioners, um, that that they're you know informing their decisions, their recommendations they're putting into practice, and we all need to have an understanding of where all this fits in terms of relevance. It's my new favorite word, Dan. Used to be yeah. context. It's now is it relevant? You know, like yeah, it, it's it's awesome science, but is it actually relevant? Maybe not so much, depending on its context of application. So I haven't lost context totally. Um, Bearing I think, what you've said. Sorry, sorry. I think, I think just on that as well,
1: I mean, you, yeah. you could probably lump everything that I've just talked about under the word pedagogy. Yes. It's the ability to use your knowledge and get an outcome. And, and, and all I've done is add a social science, tried to add a social science side to that knowledge. for for people to think, okay, you know, if I go and work in different parts of the world, I probably need to work on these sorts of things to make sure that I can have that impact, which is what you referred to at the start. You know, what 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 does it take to get an impact? So it doesn't matter if you work in a lab or, you know, on the at the coalface, as you say, you've still got to be able to put things in usable terms to a selective audience for those people to go away and use it and or explain it to others.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think the pedagogical concept is important. I mean, it's a big thing in education generally. And I, I do worry about our profession insofar as there is, there is on the one hand, a deep level of respect and focus on on science. And by science, I mean technical, you know, mechanistic science. Yeah. But there's nowhere near enough focus on, on the practice side of things. Um, and, and all too many people will get their degree, get their masters, which is, you know, where things are at now in our profession. It's not enough to have a bachelor's, really need a masters, blah, blah, blah. You know, job done, box ticked, right, let's get out there. No, 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 That that's just your driving license. You know, that doesn't mean you know what country to drive in and, you know, the nuances of the vehicle. and the terrain. <laughs> Sorry? That's your theory test. Exactly.
1: Practical test now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, they need to hear this, particularly from people, you know, such as yourself with all that vast experience is that that really is just the start. You need to know those things, but you also need to know how to, you Mm. know, if we stick with the same analogy, you need to know how to navigate the external environment, that terrain and deal with the, you know, the, the problems as, as they occur, um, organically and acutely in, in that world that we live in, which is highly unpredictable, you know, uh, the, um, you know, the, 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 luxury of, of the finely controlled studies, etc., is, you know, that, that theory, that science is rarely, if ever articulated in the real world of sort of the day-to-day trenches of, of, Of of practice as a performance nutritionist, you know that's why I feel so strongly about doing these Mm. science-to-practice focused podcasts with people such as yourself. So, I mean, we we've sort of covered this, but um, you know, what 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 would you say are the biggest problems to hand that practitioners are going to face? I don't mean just limitations to the research because you have already pointed out there's almost none particularly as it pertains to sport and exercise nutrition but what would you say are the you know what are the what are if if we had to prioritize some of this stuff you know what are the what are the areas that people are going to need to focus on mostly to 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 get themselves not just aware but upskill their their ability to 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 actually maybe have a chance of dealing with these scenarios having a successful outcome um, but what are the areas they're going to need to start to to work on, and how do they get that experience? You know this, again this is one of those things like until you 've actually maybe gone and worked in all these different countries, um, how do you get the experience in the same way people say, well you know until I get that that job, how am I supposed to get the experience that they ask for
1: so i think I think the first point is to is to try and understand I go back to that point of try and understand the culture of where you work currently and when I say culture I don't mean perhaps just inside that that organization but I mean the national culture because we know national cultures you know impact behaviors and and, and the need to, to change behaviors and 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 or our practice so the first point is to is to try and identify what the national culture the the the, the national culture is that you where you currently work and then if you are, have identified a geographical area where you would like to go and work is to see if there are any differences there. Um, and certainly my work has tried to bridge that science to practice because there wasn't really any um, literature there in our sphere so so I would hope that my work has, has, has helped identify what those value orientations are in and behaviours in different countries. Um, And um, people then, you know, practitioners can look at, well, okay so I'm good at these right now, but I need to look at these other areas. Um, So, for example, you know, coming coming to the Middle East, I'll give you a practical example. Coming to the Middle East, um, you know, dealing dealing with sort of ambiguity and complexity, you know very, very much seeing problem solving as a social exercise and 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 the ability to engage and network with a lot of people to, you know to, to, to get a final outcome is a huge a huge competency for, for this for this area of the world and i'm not just talking Qatar; i'm talking the mid you know the mid the middle east generally um and and you know i'm sure there's there's lots of other examples i could kind of go into you know using different countries in the world but but i mean that would be my first point is understand where you are now and if you want to try and work somewhere else this different country well what are the cultural nuances that you know that might make you need to reevaluate some of the competencies that you've got second thing is you don't necessarily have to work in those countries because um, you know, we all, there's a big push at the moment for lots of collaborative things in our own countries to work cross border, cross country, you know, f- for the benefit of A, our athletes or B, you know, science in general. Um, and an example of that here, you know, in, in Aspital, we're an IOC um, accredited center for research. So, you know, yesterday I was talking to, um, um, Ian Needleman in, in UCL about some, some dentistry collaboration unbelievably so so cool. so you know it it's, a, it's not just about working in these countries it's about actually understanding how people work you know within the, the collaborative teams that, 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 that also you may already be involved in you know and and it's a simple things like well why, why 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 do they take so long to or why are they so delayed in their time frames and their deadlines why don't they meet their deadlines um why why don't they plan um why are they just telling you what to do why aren't they listening to you know there's lots of things that you need messages that you need to pull out of some of the the things that you're observing even if these are verbal cues to to then reflect back and go well that's so different to the way that we work i work why why is that and that's not necessarily just to do with personalities individual personalities it just could be to do with the way you know from a cultural perspective the way that things are done where they are currently working. Um, and I think the third thing is, is to make sure you've got a good mentor. You know, I've I've, I've talked to this constantly, call me, email me. Um, uh, you know, people like, for example, Mark Allison, I, I speak to on a, on a regular basis, not as a mentor, but just to catch up. But, you know, Mark uses Nigel Mitchell. You know, I use uh, Floyd Woodrow. We all have blind spots and sometimes it's really important, or when you're in a situation where you know you need to bounce something off somebody who knows you well, who's got almost like a good benchmark benchline knowledge of your behaviors, who you are, what what you're doing, to actually give you some guidance and to make you check and challenge you a little bit and make you second second think. And um, so I can't really underestimate the value of tagging yourself to, to a mentor if you're thinking or if you are going to work in a different country because there will be frustrations. You know, even if you go to a developed country in the world, there will be frustrations. And it's really important that you have somebody there that you can not only talk to them about those frustrations and vent, but, but also get some real practical guidelines or guidance because they've, they've worked outside of the country where, you know, you've, you've actually come from. Um, and I'm not just saying that to, to to increase my inbox traffic. I'm genuinely just saying that um, I, I think mentorship is identified all the way through. You know, certainly the dietetic world and and and, and the sports nutrition world. And I think it's it's not done enough. You know, I think people, I think young practitioners are afraid to reach out or. You know, and I, think, I think as more senior practitioners, I think we've, we've got a duty of care to support young developing practitioners. And certainly, yeah. you know, something like the SENR, for example, in the UK, I think is a wonderful thing and a wonderful opportunity, you know, for, for, for things like this, where you can have some voluntary people, you know, tagged into, in, in, into a, an accredited board um, you know, to, to offer some guidance as, as is required, you know, and I think there's a lot of people out there who will be willing to do that. Um, and I certainly do, you know, at the moment, I, I, I'm more than happy to accept emails and have a Skype and, 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 you know, make people understand my mistakes that I've done across my life so far, of which there are many, um, but I've learned from them and I've make developed, both, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's what it's all about, you know, it's very few people that can go through their journey of not making mistakes
0: yeah no absolutely well what a brilliant way to end the conversation which ultimately could go on for a very long time but of course it is a reflection on a fairly long journey um that you've had you know but this is one of those sort of mentorship examples of listening to people who've who've made it who've Mm -hmm. successfully traveled that path and learned from those mistakes and those experiences and in this case, one of those lessons is the importance of cultural differences and understanding the ins and outs of that and how that can impact your career. But also what's clear from your own career path is not being shy to take on those challenges of working in different environments and countries. Um, Because the rewards can be huge. And of course, this is one of those things that massively enriches, not just your skill set as a practitioner, but also your own personal life. And, you no, know, we, we we you know it is a privilege to be able to live and work in different cultures and work with people. And face it, you become a little bit more interesting, and life becomes a little bit more interesting. But if we yeah. have to put it down into professional or monetary terms, is you probably are more employable as a result as well. So it's a win-win. Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So well, look, thanks, mate. It's been good. <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed this chat. If if people want to. Uh, we won't put out your email or anything. I'll, I'll link to social media channels and so on. That's you know uh, LinkedIn and all that is a probably a, a, a better, more professional sort of way of connecting with you. Yes. But uh, what what would uh, if people want to follow your um, your musings on Twitter, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know what what what's the sort of the quick and simple way of finding out more about you? And
1: um, yes, yeah, so social sure. um, you can follow me. I'm Dan at ProAthletes. Um, on 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 Twitter, um, uh, you know, much to the amusement of my kids, I don't do Instagram. You You're know. not
0: Insta famous. No, that's no,
1: no. <laughs> no. Um, I do read carefully what I forward on on my Twitter feed to make sure I'm not forwarding on all sorts of spurious nonsense.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so you know, and I and I do post things as I do applied you know work here. Um, I do post the findings on there, you know, cause yeah. I, I try and keep people aware of, you know, what I'm finding because it obviously you know, it takes a while to get stuff published. And, of course. Um, um, no, well you
0: guys have great outputs, um, both yourself personally, but also at Aspetar. there's all sorts of great. Yeah, it's great. You I mean, and your colleagues there, I mean, there's a, you know, we haven't mentioned this really, but there's an absolute world-class collection of, um, Experts and you know uh, up-and-coming experts that work there one of which I've interviewed in the past Marco Cardinale um, Where we got into that whole concept of over you know, actually one of the most popular podcasts I've done. So um, um, So that you know, that's been great and that's one of the guys you work with so that's pretty awesome um, Look we could drag we, we, we could carry on and carry on but we've run out of time um, sure. So I'll just remind folks that um, there will be some show notes where we'll link to some of these articles and con- you know contact information and and so on. There's loads of podcasts that have preceded this over the years where we get into some of the topics we've delved into, um, and uh, you can find out about that at guruperformance.com as well as our uh, various um, educational and research outputs that we do. In addition, of course, to this podcast. Um, and you can find out about that at guruperformance.com. I am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode of We Do Science back to you very soon. Take care, everyone, and uh, talk to you all soon.